In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. The following podcast contains explicit language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a house of cards as a structure or situation in constant danger of collapse. Anyone who has tried building an actual house of cards understands the tension, focus, and precision that's necessary to keep it from crashing down. I imagine a serial killer might also live in that state of stress, the constant give and take between fulfilling their fantasies and not getting caught. But when researching Rex Hewerman, the man alleged by police to have killed at least three of the victims associated with the Long Island serial killer, it became clear that he was living in quite a few houses of cards. This episode, we dive into the secrets hiding in his financial history. When you start following the money or looking at someone's financial life and how they lived it, it tells a whole story that may be different than the persona that you see publicly. And we center our attention on his actual home, 
which may in fact be the house of horrors where women lost their lives. My immediate thought is that the home was a place where he actually felt safe to do these things. My second immediate thought is that he was reenacting something from his childhood. From ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Long Island Serial Killer. The story of the Long Island Serial Killer and the investigation into the person who might be responsible for the murders of 11 victims found along Ocean Parkway is in fact one giant house of cards. I think the myth of the Long Island Serial Killer is as big as it is because the chief of police of the 11th largest police department in the country is a suspect in the murder. People think he did it or was involved in it. That was Rob Trotta, Suffolk County legislator back in 2020. Our early episodes track how the former chief of police carefully manipulated the investigation for the purpose of hiding his own proclivities for sex workers and how politicians in his corner not only covered things up, but crafted narratives to protect themselves and others. The wind that knocked down all of those lies was a combined effort of investigative journalists and voters who said, enough is enough. If you haven't had a chance to listen, please do. It does very much shed light on why it took law enforcement 13 years before making an arrest. Here to announce the indictment of defendant Rex Andrew Heerman, 59 years of age. He's been arrested for the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. The investigation of Maureen Brainerd Barnes is ongoing. These young women went missing between July of 2007 and September of 2010. They were found in December of 2010 by the Suffolk County Police Department, and then there was nothing, absolutely nothing. For the next 13 years, their cases went unsolved, until today. District Attorney Ray Tierney announced the arrest on July 14th of 2023. In the last three months, a lot of new information has come to light, and the case is making its way to trial, slowly. On Wednesday, September 27th, the Suffolk County District Attorney had a press conference after the latest court appearance. Good morning. Thanks, everyone, for coming out to Suffolk County. It was a typical court conference uh, with a case like this. We worked out some logistics with regards to the protective order, with regard to discovery. We provided a number of items of discovery. I think 5,000 pages of material, primarily grand jury material, grand jury reports, grand jury exhibits, that sort of stuff. There's a lot of material that we have to provide to the defense. We have to provide the material in such a way that's coherent so they can follow it along. Uh, it helps them, but it also helps us so we are able to memorialize and show that every single piece of paper and document in this case has been provided to the defense because that's certainly important not only for the trial but for an appellate record as well. You don't take a 13-year investigation and, and turn it over in a day or two. It's just a, a voluminous amount of stuff, and we're providing it on a rolling basis. He also spoke to the DNA of the suspect, 
both the surreptitious sample obtained as part of the investigation and the one taken from Rex Hureman after his arrest. As everyone, I think, knows that there was an abandonment sample obtained from the defendant via the pizza box. A DNA profile was obtained from that pizza. Subsequent to the defendant's arrest, a buccal swab was taken of the defendant. A DNA profile was obtained from that buccal swab, and the buccal swab of the defendant matches the DNA profile from that of the abandonment sample in the pizza box. We were very confident that this was going to be the case. We know from the bail letter that the pizza box sample matched the DNA sample found with the body of Megan Waterman. Investigators were confident that the pizza DNA was Rex Hureman, most likely because they saw him discard it. But by getting the buccal swab from Rex Hureman directly and matching it to the pizza sample, Rex is now also officially linked to the DNA found with the victim. DA Tierney was also asked about the status of additional charges, in particular, any murder charges related to the fourth Gilgo Beach victim, Maureen Brainerd Barnes. I know that when you watch a show like CSI, everything gets done in an hour, but that's just not realistic. Our investigation is continuing, and when we're prepared to announce charges, if that day comes, we'll do it in court. We said that initially our investigation centered around the Gilgo Four, that we were prepared to bring charges with regard to three out of the four Gilgo Four victims, and we're continuing with the investigation of the Maureen Brainerd Barnes murder. And now we've expanded our investigation to include other bodies that were recovered in that area, and we'll speak about that when and if we're prepared to bring charges. Is there DNA evidence on any of those other there's always potentially uh, DNA evidence in any case. Uh, you just have to see whether or not you can take DNA or genetic material and compare it to a subject. This is an interesting tidbit. To acknowledge the possibility that the grand jury investigation includes the other victims as well is encouraging. From his last sentence, it's also clear that DNA is the focus. If suspect DNA could be matched to Rex Hureman, or if Rex Hureman could be eliminated as a suspect, that would be important information prior to trial. But let's not forget that the bodies of some of the other six victims, many dismembered, took longer to be found and were thus more decomposed and exposed to the elements for years longer, potentially interfering with suspect DNA collection. All in all, in this particular press conference, District Attorney Ray Tierney didn't deliver any big headlines. But defense attorney Michael Brown had his own press conference and was clearly starting to build his case, focusing on what he described as a lack of discovery. Discovery being the process in which the prosecution shares their materials and evidence with the defense. I haven't gotten discovery. This investigation was going on for 10 to 12 years. There were numerous other suspects, and you folks have reported this, there's numerous other suspects that they looked at. I want to see those records. I want to see those notes. I want to see why the police accused other people, were focusing on other people, and what it is about those individuals that caused them to discount those other individuals. I haven't seen any of that. I also want to see, obviously, the crime lab. I want to see the testing that was done. I want to make sure it was done in the right manner and fashion. You folks have received what I've received, which is that bail letter, which says there's a pizza crust. DNA can be transferred. DNA can be transferred from me 
going up to the cameraman and shaking his hand and he goes to a second person and now it's transferred. So I'm just putting that out there, but it's still a significant amount of people that could be the source of this hair. Then they talked about burner phones and they talked about pinging in New York City. That's what I've seen in terms of the bail letter. Pinging in New York City, I mean, you, you folks know how the pinging works and there's probably hundreds of thousands of people that are pinging off that cell site at any given time. This all seemed like standard defense attorney talk, but Mr. Brown did call out the DA's office for what could be considered at the very best slow rolling the discovery process, and at the worst, keeping the defense busy with unimportant or irrelevant materials. Initially, we got four external hard drives. 99% of those four external hard drives was what's called poll cameras. What the DA's office and the police department had poll cameras focused on my client's house from a year and a half prior up until the date of the arrest. What the poll cameras show is a guy who gets up in the morning, he goes to work, he comes home, he spends time with his wife and children, you see him chopping wood, you see him hanging out on his porch, that's what you see. And that is 99% of what we got from the beginning. The poll cameras basically defy their suggestion that this is this monster of a person. When he was arrested, there was a video in the actual police vehicle. My client, unless he's a tremendous actor, he was completely shocked, had no idea why he was being taken into custody. So the government doesn't tell you about these things, but these are things we're gonna bring out during the course of the trial. What about other evidence you've seen? Again, about 99% of these poll cameras, you have approximately 3,000 pages deal with the ME's report when they found the bodies on each of the three occasions. We had videos, again, of, of him being arrested and the, what they call the takedown and him in the, in the police vehicle. I think that's the extent of what I recall in the first set, in the first four external hard drives. The fifth external hard drive is voluminous, which had a couple of things in it that were troubling to us. Number one is there's a watermark across every single piece of evidence, every photograph. It's troubling because we want to obviously print out some of these items and utilize it to our benefit at trial. In addition, the photographs that they provided were in a PDF fashion. So PDF is much less clear than a digital photograph. So we wanted everything digital because when you enlarge things digitally, you can see much more detail. That's going to be important for us. So those are two of the things that we're now getting. Mr. Brown also asked the judge to let his client review these materials. We wanted a court order because we wanted to enable him the opportunity to review all the discovery while he's in custody. And the sheriff is now abiding by that order and he's permitting my client to review the discovery as it trickles in. He's the defendant, he's charged, he's an intelligent man, he's never been arrested. He wants to know what is it that they have that they're saying I'm involved in this. So as a defense attorney, we obviously want to share that with our client. If he was out of custody, he'd probably be coming to my office and we'd review that together. Because he's in custody, we made copies and we're affording him the opportunity so that he can at his leisure review these items and all the discovery and assist in his defense because that's what it's all about. And how is his mood and demeanor now? He's somebody who was, has from the beginning has said he's not guilty so he's now incarcerated. He's a, a fellow who was working, has never been arrested, has a wife and children, 
is a productive member of society. And obviously the, the district attorney, the government is making these allegations and they're horrific. But if he's not guilty of this, well now he has to sit in custody, be away from his family, be away from his wife and kids, not work, not produce for his family and support them, and sit in a jail cell until this case can come to fruition. So he's doing the best he can. The sheriff made a comment about how he's not making any emotions. Right. And, and I know the press ran with that and said, oh, look, he's not showing emotions. Well, I, I have to tell you that when I first started on this case, I made it a point to tell him, just get through this, Rex, get through this, get to the point where we can go to trial and don't show emotion. Don't let anything upset you. Just be stoic. And that's what he's done. And then we saw a comment, unfortunately, and I have a, a lot of respect for Sheriff Toulon, but the sheriff made a comment about he's not showing emotion. That's just not the case. That's just sensationalism, and that's just things that, unfortunately, poison the jury pool. Could a change of venue request be coming from Mr. Brown? It sure sounds like it with comments like that. Their next court date is scheduled for November 15th. In an update for the family of Rex Yorman, Asa Ellerup, Rex Yorman's wife, has requested that the 300-plus guns that were seized during the search of their home be returned to her. The estimated value has been rumored to be anywhere from 100000 to 350000 And according to her counsel, with her assets frozen and the family's sole income earner in jail, she needs the funds. Asa, as you may remember from a previous episode, is not only caring for an adult special needs child, but also fighting cancer. A GoFundMe started for her by Melissa Moore, who is the daughter of the happy face killer, Keith Hunter Jesperson has raised over $55,000 at the time of this recording. But clearly, finances are a big source of stress, and our investigation shows that's not a new thing. Next, we dive deep into the financial history of Rex Uramin, and brace yourselves, because the numbers are shocking. And later, we talk with former CSI and host of ID's Crime Scene Confidential, Alina Burroughs, as we take a closer look at the possible location where the victims were murdered, Rex Uerman's house. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. 
I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. We've spent the last few months trying to learn as much as possible about Rex Uerman, the man Suffolk County law enforcement believes to be responsible for the murder of at least three women found along Ocean Parkway on Long Island. Diving into the public records, the financial picture of the Hewerman household seems to resemble that house of cards we referenced at the top of this episode. It wasn't as sturdy as the image he was projecting. Turns out, there have been numerous tax liens filed against both Rex and Asa Ellerup, his wife. These are state tax liens, as well as federal income tax liens. Some have been paid, others are still outstanding, but they show a pattern over almost two decades of not paying income tax, tax liabilities, fines, and interest totaled close to half a million dollars. Additionally, the New York State Labor Commission recently filed a motion to collect a judgment against Rex and his company, RH Consultants, on an initial judgment of almost $85,000. Hewerman had only paid a little over $16,000, leaving another $68,500 and change unpaid. Here's where it gets interesting. While debts with the government agencies were clearly mounting, Rex Hewerman purchased 5.4 acres of land in South Carolina, and he bought this property for $154,000 with no mortgage. And that's in addition to his timeshare that he owned in Las Vegas, Nevada. So to make sense of these financials, I reached out to Hubert Klein, a forensic accountant with decades of experience. Do you think that people's financial life will actually tell you so much about their life in general? Once you strip back the emotions of anything in life, you look at the underlying financial skeleton, because that's really what drives the behavior over time, because people are trying to live up to an expectation or have an expectation of how they want to be viewed. You know, everybody says, follow the money. And when you start following the money or looking at someone's financial life and how they lived it, it tells a whole story that may be different than the persona that you see publicly. 
I don't know much about Mr. Huerman. I only know what I see in the news reports. So I'm giving you what I it, it is really a, a speculative opinion based on what's known today. According to the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance, Huerman and his wife currently owe a total of 81500 in personal income tax to the state, with the tax bills having accrued since November of 2020. The problematic issue is really the personal taxes, they're yours. And even in a discharge in bankruptcy, it's very hard to get your personal tax liability discharged. Local reports show that he was subject to six IRS liens between 2010 and 21. According to the liens, he owed a total of 425000 for taxes he'd failed to pay going back to 2005. So as an accountant with experience for over 37 years, the IRS, they don't mess around, right? The IRS is not always right, but more often than not, they're not wrong. And that's the, the whole thing. So when the IRS is looking for significant amounts of money, you worry because they have this little thing called the CID, Criminal Investigative Division, right? You have IRS agents with guns, people who can put you away. Half a million dollars for the average person is a lot of money, significant amount of money. I don't know his financial status, but I would believe from what I've seen in the reports and where he lived, he didn't have a half a million dollars laying around to just pay the IRS when they came looking. It's almost like the Ponzi scheme. I owe the IRS for 2005. Well, I eventually paid them in 2010, but now they're coming after me for eight, nine, and 10. Make some money, pay those off, because don't forget, sometimes it takes the IRS a couple of years to catch you. It's almost like kicking the can down the road, but eventually you got to pay the piper. I mean, he's also very meticulous. I mean, he was a permits guy. I think he knows what he's doing. I think he was like Ponzi scheming. Usually the general behavior is you buy yourself time. And as long as you're making money and you're breathing, you can continue that game. It only becomes an issue if the money dries up. So one of the big questions I had was why the IRS had not yet arrested or charged Rex Hewerman with the crime of tax evasion. I mean, this is a lot of money we're talking about. And Rex is walking around free and clear. You know, the IRS is nice at first. They'll come in. They'll ask you, they'll do an audit. If you owe money, they'll demand money. But then it usually ramps up pretty quickly. If you owe them money, penalties and interest are accruing. And the penalties and interest with the IRS, even a state taxing authority, they can quickly dwarf the actual tax liability over a period of years because the penalties and interest are just exorbitant. The goal here is to collect money for the taxpayers of the United States or state of New York. We kind of have this thing that we say amongst professionals is, you know, do they really want to bite the hand that they expect to feed it or pay it back? I've seen cases where people owe a lot of money. I said, oh, they're going to go to jail. And it's like, oh, they're going to cut a deal. Say that we recouped X number of dollars for the, the taxpayers or the federal government or the state is a lot better than saying we put somebody in jail who's now going to cost us more money for the five to 10 years that are in jail. It seems as though he did pay 215 thousand of that per documents filed in 2022. So he is sort of paying the chunks. It sounds like somebody who's classically playing the game. The money's not there to pay everything, but make enough money just to to stay a little bit ahead of them. I'm so interested in sort of just what you've observed in your own experience where you're like, I've seen people like this. Their double life also involves a financial double life. Hunting trips were big for him for his networking. He has 300 guns. I mean, I don't know how much guns cost. 
But like 300 guns and many of which are collector's items, how does this sort of correlate with a criminal mind, in your opinion? It's an emotional high for a lot of people who do this stuff. Like an athlete who gets juiced by being on the court or being on the field, for some criminals, that's what drives them, is the catch me if you can type of attitude. And if he had the places in Vegas, and if there was an element that he enjoyed gambling, as far as the, the firearms and the hunting, full disclosure, I own firearms. I am a hunter. I don't understand why an individual would have 300 weapons, even if they're collector's weapons. Um, they cost a lot of money. You either want to show them to somebody or you want to store them. You're never going to shoot them all. So I don't understand what drove that other than, you know, that was his sort of trophy. I would think that in a lot of circles, uh, higher income levels, people do like to hunt, especially males. A hunting trip is the alternative to the golf course for a lot of people. It's a higher end alternative to a golf course. And a hunting trip is, you know, a five to $10,000 adventure and you go to a remote place and um, you can enjoy yourself. It can be a very exclusive type thing. Anybody can go play golf, but not everybody's going to go on an exclusive hunting trip with you. As far as owing this kind of taxes, he only paid off a portion of it in 2022 or 2021, but he bought some of these properties that we're finding out about sooner than that. I just feel as though if a credit check was done on me for a mortgage application or whatever, I feel as though that would be a red flag to a broker and then they wouldn't lend to me or to a bank. How could that happen? I don't know what his personal credit history was. And, and maybe some of this stuff didn't show up on his credit reports because he was smart enough to pay them off before it would hit. If you look at the time period, interest rates were super low. You went in with a down payment and he had the ability to pay if he showed he had the income to do it. Even people with bad credit can get loans, right? As long as they can show the ability to pay. If he borrowed money for all these properties and he owed the IRS money, you know, that's an additional strain on his capital needs and his cash flow needs. What happens to all this money he owes now that he's in jail and probably never working again? If the IRS or the state can't collect it, it'll probably go against the estate. It's going to follow him, his family, or his estate and his wife. She has filed for divorce, so many have speculated that that's why. She must be aware of some of this, right? So to shield her from either civil litigation from the victim's families. I'm sure she's got legal advisors around her. The divorce and how it plays into ancillary claims coming from victims' families and other things. They filed married separate. They each keep their own tax liability. If they file married joint, you know, she's going to have the joint several liability. But then there's also, don't think that the service might not come and say, well, what if he made some transfers to her of rather large dollar amounts, knowing something was eventually going to happen? So it's, it's not just a tax liability. It's the money. Like I said, always file the money. I would just say wait for the trial because the prosecutors have something you and I don't have, right? They have subpoena power. So I'm sure they subpoenaed all the business records, all the personal financial records, credit cards and everything. We don't know all his spending and where he was spending the money and how all that was put together. There's a lot more to it. So the, the thing that's going to tie this all together is, is weaving the pattern of the financial part of it and how it was done and how it was paid for and where did he go and when did he go. These are all allegations. We're hypothesizing of, of what may have happened and you know the legal process will unwind it all and it, it should be a rather interesting trial. The outstanding tax debt owed by Rex Uerman came 
as kind of a shock to me. The IRS tells us they have about 10 million people with delinquent accounts, and it's estimated that 15 to 19% of people try to evade paying taxes, either by lying or by delays. But if he truly is responsible, Rex Hurman, as law enforcement alleges he is, for at least three murders, why would you do anything to possibly draw government attention to yourself? So I spoke with Dr. Angela Arnold to learn what this behavior tells us about Rex Hewerman. She's been practicing psychiatry for 25 years. It seems as though he has running sort of like a Ponzi scheme with his financials. Like he owes hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. It seems foolish. Like, could you think someone like him would want to just stay off the radar? Like, what do you make of that? It could definitely be an arrogance that he just finds himself to be above the law. So he doesn't even think about the repercussions. And I'll tell you something. I've known people that (laughs) should know better about paying their taxes. And it's very curious to me because they'll owe the government all of these back taxes, years and years of back taxes, and they'll go buy a second home. So sometimes I wonder if people think that they're above the law. Let's just see what else I can get away with. I'm just not even going to worry about it because they don't think the way the rest of us do. Especially if he's getting away with something as egregious as murder. Like he's probably like, oh, I can get out of this tax evasion stuff. Yes. So they're very grandiose in their thinking. Okay. Very grandiose. They're better than everybody. They're above the law. Nobody's going to catch them. They don't live under the same rules that you and I live under. We would never do that. We wouldn't dream of not paying our taxes, would we? Because in our minds, there are too many repercussions to pay for that. But in his mind, even though he was an architect and working in New York and all of this kind of stuff, he didn't see that it was wrong. Because if you don't have a conscience about murder, then you're certainly not going to have a conscience about paying your taxes. That would weigh on me and give me crippling anxiety, knowing yeah. what I owed, or fear that I would get caught for being a murderer. Do people like Rex possess that? It depends. That's sort of a litmus test to check and see if they do have a conscience or not. Because when I say they don't have a conscience, they don't turn that on and off. Some of them know the difference between right and wrong, and some of them don't even know the difference between right and wrong. Is that wild? But would you argue that if one is covering things up, then they know it's wrong? Correct. Some people say that sociopaths and psychopaths are the same thing and there's no difference. Some people say there is a difference. And the difference lies in whether they have a conscience or not about what they're doing and whether they know the difference between right and wrong. So it's a matter of degrees. Interesting. Another thing we've learned about him is that he's very litigious. He had Mm -hmm. gotten in about four car accidents in the years prior to his arrest, where he then sued the drivers. One suit was like for upwards of $5 million. Again, for me, I'm like, you keep calling a police officer to the scene. You keep dancing with the risk of popping up on someone's radar. What do you make of that? What I make of that is that it's another example of his grandiosity. That is a big thing for people who are narcissists. They're grandiose. They think of themselves above the law. It's also grandiose for someone to think that they're going to get $5 million for a car accident. That's absurd. 
he probably saw absolutely nothing wrong with asking for that. He did not see that as a grandiose request because he thinks he is that special that that's what he is owed. What do you make of the fact that his house was in complete disrepair, but he's buying timeshares in Vegas, he's going on expensive hunting trips in Alaska, he went on a safari in Africa. Like, what does that tell you about him? Often when someone's home is in complete and utter disrepair, it always tells me about the state of their mind. It literally always tells me about how chaotic their mind is. Perhaps the house had some other symbolism to him, didn't it? And then is there an added layer given the variable that he was raised in that house? Yes, that adds such a layer to this. And for him to have wanted to go back into that home, you have to wonder if he was trying to relive something, if he was trying to make something right by being in the home. While publicly, the prosecution and law enforcement haven't confirmed that the crimes were committed there. Based on the evidence we have, the victim's cell phones were tracked there. We have the wife's hair being found on the bodies. It certainly seems as though the victims had contact with the home. So we're speculating that it's possible that the house is the crime scene. My immediate thought is that the home was a place where he actually felt safe to do these things. My second immediate thought is that he was reenacting something from his childhood. So he waited until his family went out of town rather than going somewhere else to do it and hiding Whatever happened had to happen at that house, almost like it was a ritual for him to fulfill. So we know the burial ground was close to his home, very meticulous, like they were spaced approximately 500 feet apart on this coastal highway. But one occurred in 2007 and the others occurred within a closer period of time, but you know, months and months had passed, but he managed to maintain this 500 feet apart kind of trend with where he was placing them. So, like, what does the meticulousness of this tell you? And how do you think he was even able to, like, monitor where he was placing them? Like, his sort of fixation and the organization and the disposal, it tells me that he could have suffered from some OCD, some obsessive compulsive disorder, which wouldn't be shocking to me because that's an anxiety disorder. It, that wouldn't be shocking to me at all. And this would be a manifestation of something like that. This is me surmising, but I have to wonder if he went and visited them. Are we ever going to know that? We know that when he calls one of the victim's family members to taunt them, he said mm -hmm. that I'm watching your sister rot. Oh, my gosh. So he was doing some sort of ritual that he was participating in of his own making, right? Which means, oh, my God, it's so awful. He's an architect, right? Who's going to question this guy? It all goes back to his family home where he's killing people when nobody else is around. And he's burying them down the street. This home is such a mystery. It didn't look like the house you'd expect a midtown Manhattan architect to live in. And when law enforcement turned it upside down, suggesting they believed it to be a crime scene, 
you wonder how someone can live with their family in a possible house of horrors. Next, I talk to Alina Burroughs, forensic expert and host of ID's Crime Scene Confidential, about the house and what we can learn about this case through the photos and other evidence that's been released. On the day that Rex Hewerman was arrested, camera crews from all over the world descended upon Massapequa Park, Long Island. The focal point was Rex's house, the one alleged to hold all of the secrets. The pictures we've seen released to the world just added to the mystery. It looked to be in disrepair. It was cluttered, unassuming, and law enforcement treated it as a crime scene and the family alleged destruction of property. So I reached out to Alina Burroughs, forensic expert, former CSI, and host of ID's Crime Scene Confidential, to get more insight into what exactly happened inside that house. How did you get sort of sucked into the world of crime scenes? I think what appealed to me was going in after everything was already done, searching for invisible evidence. And it kind of feels at that place like it's just me and the suspect. And they've left something behind that, you know, maybe the average person isn't going to see. So now it's like, it's just you and me. And I'm going to find why you've done it. I'm going to find the proof that you've done it. And I'm going to keep you from doing it to anybody else. I'm like the ultimate big sister. I love that. And is there such a thing for you as like a good crime scene versus bad crime scene? Yeah, absolutely. I would laugh and say I had one of those CSI moments based on the TV show, right? Because they always solve everything super fast. They always find the evidence. I would get that adrenaline rush or I would get giddy because I'm like, I got you. And when I lifted that print, you just get this gut feeling as an investigator, like I know this is that person. When you're at home and like you're hearing news, for example, that there is an arrest and there's a suspect in the Long Island serial killer case, where does your mind go first? Usually it goes, oh my gosh, I know how much work they're doing. I know what this means to the investigators, especially when I see those, the aerial images where they're geared up, they're doing the search warrants. They started working on a particular suspect 18 months before it was known to the public. And so how familiar are you with aspects? Like, have you been following to some degree, just like the headlines about what's broken about the case? I think I've got a good overview knowledge of what's going on. So what I'd love to do is like talk about some of the evidence that has been made public. One of the big questions that has arisen, and it's kind of controversial, is whether or not the house is the site of where the murders occurred. The evidence that we have that suggests possibly is that we know his victim's cell phones were brought there, presumably prior to the murder. It seems as though that at least one victim went to the house more than once. And other evidence we have suggesting possibly is that we have two female hairs that were found on Megan Waterman, including one on the tape wrapped around her head, A female hair was also found in tape used to wrap burlap around victim Amber Costello. And finally, a female hair was detected in a belt buckle found on Maureen Brainerd Barnes' body. And the testing indicated that 99% of the North American female population 
tied to these hairs were ruled out, meaning that it's most likely the wife or even possibly the daughter's hair. What do you make of that? Does that lead you to believe that perhaps this would have happened there? Yeah, it tells us there's a common source and the cell phone's more likely to me say it points back to the house, but the hairs say that likely our victims were in the same place. If we're sharing hairs, then they are likely in the same location at some point in time. Could that be the home? Yes. It could also be our vehicle. It could be our transportation. You know, we have headrests on vehicles where people all put their head in that same location. So that is one possibility. Could it also be that there's some process that is being followed that is the same victims that are being moved in bedding? You know, putting the victim on a bed, wrapping them in something, and then moving them. That's a possibility. So when I look at the house, my first thought is, right, it's risky to have people at a house. When you look at photos of the house, they are very close. The, the Hurman house is very close to other houses. As a married man, you're having multiple women coming and going that, that you're not going to have your neighbors when your wife is back saying, oh, I saw Rex with another girl. Was that your, was that your niece? Everybody's got a nosy neighbor. So that's a little risky on that end. If they're being killed inside the house, we know we've got locations where it could occur, basements, backyard, garage, whatever. Is the garage empty to where you could bring a vehicle into the garage and put the victim who's now deceased, if you've killed them inside the house, inside your vehicle and back them out? Because otherwise now you have to put a deceased person from your house and take them out and put them in your car, that's also extremely risky when you've got homes that are so close by. I was trying to find any photos of the garage open and they don't exist. Because like you said, I mean, it is risky. If not the house, where would he do something so elaborate? Because law enforcement has said they were kept alive, they were tortured. So if not the house, where? Yeah, unless he's got a, a public storage unit somewhere, somewhere that's private where he's doing this. Because if if we're talking about cause of death being strangulation, that's not going to be something that's messy. It's not going to leave behind blood. What are the details on cause of death? Do you know? They've released very few, but it is asphyxiation. And they've just said in passing, you know, they were tortured. This was not like a quick thing. And based on several of the searches he made, like based on his proclivities, like the types of porn he was watching, you can kind of speculate as to what may have occurred. Because I was thinking, I was like, you know, it is so risky to do it at your home. Well, I mean, home is where you're comfortable. And I think we know that he'd made some changes to the basement. What I would be very interested in is, is there a pattern of escalation? You know, is there something that starts with basic manual strangulation and then is he feeling more comfortable and does this escalate to needing more time? Because I feel like in the beginning, as you're as you're doing this, you know, trying to get into the mind of somebody like this, you're going to do it. And then maybe you're like, OK, I got to get rid of this, distance myself from this as quickly as possible. And then as you start to get to where you're doing this, you're maybe developing uh, a little bit of an ego. I got away with this. Nobody is really found out. Maybe I can afford to spend a little more time doing this. Maybe I'm taking a little more freedoms with this. So maybe he is getting a little bit more 
used to spending some more time. Maybe he's getting a little more comfortable. Maybe he's getting a little bit more risky with the behavior. We know there's maybe some cell phone calls where there was some taunting, you know, that is an extremely egotistical kind of risky behavior as well. But he could have been caught by making phone calls. So he's already engaging in some risky behavior. I've always said, and it seems to be a link when I look at um, a lot of cases involving this, is that the downfall of most people that commit homicide is ego, right? Who who gets a phone and calls family members and makes taunting phone calls saying, you know, you're not going to see them because I killed them. You know, the same people that commit these crimes over and over and over that leave DNA that do these things because it's almost like they feel like they're more powerful or in some way entitled to take these actions. Well, that's the downfall. When it comes to forensics, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. The magnitude of the search at the house, I'm sure you saw footage. I mean, it was vast. And recently the wife of the suspect made public that she was going to file a lawsuit. Have you ever been involved in and seen a search like this where the property is destroyed, is that something that happens? Is it something that's normal or would this be like an exception to the norm? Well, here's the thing. When we look at pictures of the house, we see it appears to be in its natural state that it's extremely cluttered. People are not going to leave evidence of a crime of this magnitude laying about their house. So it's not like police can just come in and find evidence of the crime and leave. They have to search. We're talking about searching for false paneling. We're talking about taking things off of walls, looking for evidence of things being hidden behind things. Uh, I'm in Florida, so we don't have basements, but I'm sure they have basements. We've got attics. We've got crawl spaces, hiding areas. We're not talking about just dumping the cereal out of the cereal box here. We're talking about we've got to very intently look for things that people are hiding for a purpose. So damage to property is not something that anybody is trying to do, but it's kind of a hazard of doing business. And the way that law enforcement looks at it is, right, law enforcement wouldn't be there had it not been for some potential involvement or thoughts of being involved in a crime. If somebody unintentionally were to break something, law enforcement has insurance just like anybody. There's something called sovereign immunity that law enforcement has that says that unless you can prove that they are intentionally breaking, right, just ravaging through your house and breaking things, that they are immune from basically like lawsuits of that thing. But insurance should cover it from the law enforcement side, but also homeowners insurance. It is not law enforcement's job to clean up after a search warrant. It does fall upon the homeowner to cover things like that. But you have to take into consideration the uh, magnitude of the crime and the existing state of the home when they come in there. You have to imagine if somebody's hiding something connected to a crime of this magnitude, they're hiding it like their life depends on it. It really is going to be not in an obvious place. Have you ever walked into a cluttered crime scene and how much harder does that make your job? We're talking about days. And the thing that, that people don't often think about is so when we look at evidence in this case, we've got the belt, right? We have the belt that has initials. We think about that belt as potentially having some maybe DNA, maybe something like that. But there's an even bigger piece of evidence that's often not considered in the search warrant that they're carrying out on the house. What if they could find a photograph that existed in the Hureman house that contained that belt, somebody wearing that belt? 
So now when you're carrying out the search warrant, you are also looking at potentially going through family photo albums. Now you're sitting down and maybe investigators are flipping through family photo albums, looking at every member and the belt that they're wearing. So we're talking about, you know, not just kind of rummaging through here, looking for places where people could be hiding things, looking for that same belt that was found from the crime scene or any other evidence that we might not know about found at the crime scene, burlap fabric, camouflage burlap fabric, pictures that might include those things, receipts, right? So now every little receipt, or if we have computers, you know, electronic evidence showing purchases of those things, compounded by the fact that this is now, you know, what amounts to a a hoarder type of situation, you know, rooms that are just full of boxes and boxes. That's kind of the art and science of being a crime scene investigator. You can't just collect the whole house. You've got to make the decision of what is evidence and what is not evidence in this case. Wow. So at one point, the wife's attorney said that pipes were opened up and things like that. What is salvageable? potentially like as far as what they're looking for in pipes like do you see can you see the rationale there victim jewelry an earring a ring something that went down those pipes own teeth things like that are going to be extremely sturdy and also hair is one of the sturdiest pieces of evidence on the human body we shed more than 100 hairs a day and it is extremely strong evidence that is subject to less degradation than other things like bodily fluids, blood, DNA in the standard capacity from bloods and fluids. So hair, if you think about it, think about going to museums and looking at historical anthropological remains, mummies, things like that. What is always remaining? Bone and hair. So hair is very, very sturdy. Think of going to the store and the types of chemicals that you have to purchase if you're trying to get rid of a clog in your drain. Those are some of the strongest chemicals that you have to purchase. And sometimes they don't always even do the trick. Hair is very strong and withstands a lot of time. I just think about that undertaking because there's obviously a lot of people in that household and trying to find a hair that maybe belongs to a victim. It's just the amount of work is just mind boggling. The smallest piece of evidence, but that in and of itself could be the ultimate link. Why would any of the victims hair have a reason to be in your drain? Obviously uh, a tooth or a fragment of bone or anything like that would have no reason to be in that pipe. So I think that's why investigators, they know that the world is watching. And this is the time to do that. Well, and especially this department has come under scrutiny for their handling of the case previously. So I can understand they're like, we're not missing anything at this house. Absolutely. I know we talked briefly about like, if not at the house, where, right? So running through the scenarios, we'll start with the car. I know Joel Rifkin did it in the car sometimes, but Joel Rifkin would also just dump them somewhere without this elaborate sort of disposal method. Does that to you make it seem as though the car is unlikely? I don't know uh, the interior of a Chevy Avalanche and, you know, entirely how many seats you can put down and all the arrangements of that, but these weren't big women. I feel like it's possible. I certainly feel like it's possible, given what we know, in terms of asphyxiation, 
I feel like this, we're talking about manual strangulation as being a high probability here certainly can be done in a vehicle. I've worked those cases. And then going through another possibility, a hotel seems even more risky than your house because you don't have tools at your disposal. You don't have a familiarity. You don't have control over people around you. Got to bring a body out. You know, with serial killers, control tends to be a running theme. If you think about a vehicle, they're contained. They're easier to clean evidence from the suspect perspective. They're thinking, I can wipe this down. I can vacuum it up. And it's an area where we can see a lot more cross-contamination of hair. So if we know that the wife's hair has been found on victims, that can explain why we might find wife's hair is if one of our victims is seated in the passenger side of a vehicle. Or, you know, is she in the back? Do they have any animals? I think they have cats because I saw a picture of them taking a cat tree out of the search warrant. And they have a dog. They have both. That's fantastic because then that's another chance at hair. So we think of hair as being human hair, cross-contamination of that. But if you've ever been to somebody's house with a dog or a cat, you always leave with a little bit of, you know, dog or cat fur on your clothing. So when we look at evidence from that hair and fiber perspective, we don't always have to limit that to human hair. Dog fur on any of these victims, cat fur on any of these victims could also be a linkage back to the human house. So if the victims were in that household, the animal hair could also provide another link. Interesting. And so the vehicle, the Chevy Avalanche, he kept it for almost two years after the bodies were found, which I thought was really strange. But then when he did get rid of it, He gave it to a relative. Ultimate souvenir. Yeah. So it was recovered by law enforcement. Like, so what could law enforcement find, you know, still we're talking 12, 13 years after the fact, what could still be there? Well, again, because it's contained and easier to clean, I'm quite sure that he's tried to, you know, wipe down any potential fingerprints and vacuum it up and and whatnot. But you you never know. It depends on how long these women were in the vehicle. It depends on exactly what was done. I always hold out hope for the chances of evidence. The good news is we still have the the car, right? That's the great news. So we have fibers from the Chevy Avalanche. That gives us another opportunity. So now we've moved on into the realm of fibers. That gives us the opportunity to take fibers, control fibers from the Chevy Avalanche Now we're looking back at all of the victims. Do any of the victims have fibers from anywhere in the Chevy Avalanche on them? Now, the fact that our victims, at least some, were wrapped helps us because the wrapping is just another element to try to hold on to hairs and fibers, right? Rather than just having our victim in the ground, which hastens the decomposition process, they're held a little more secure. And burlap is kind of, you know, got some structure to it so that it can kind of hold on and grab onto these hairs and fibers and hold on to them and protect them a little bit better. So what I'm hoping is if you did wrap somebody in the back of that Chevy Avalanche, that we do have fibers from the carpeting of a Chevy Avalanche back there. That will give us more evidence to tell us where this potentially occurred. So if we see no fibers from that, then likely, you know, they could have been wrapped or transported in a different capacity. Right. 
So interesting. I can't wait for the trial. I can't wait to hear what they have. What are you hoping for in trial as far as the evidence goes? In the interest of securing justice in, you know, in all of these cases, I hope that there is, you know, irrefutable evidence. That's what I always want is, is just irrefutable evidence because I know that the legal system has a job. So in these cases where we look at the burlap fabric and potentially the hair from the wife, I immediately already start thinking as a defense attorney because their immediate job is to say how it's reasonable for that hair to be there. Does she work for a fabric store? She just sold this fabric to the actual perpetrator of this crime. And it is not Rex Heerman, but the perpetrator of this crime came to the fabric store where she cut this fabric and that's why her hair is on the fabric and he is therefore innocent, right? Those are the types of things that we will expect to hear in this case. Reasons why her hair is on all of these pieces of fabric. Reasons why we could expect to see these things. And people will be shocked and say, no, it's clear that he did it. But that's the defense attorney's job in this case. So I just hope for irrefutable evidence that makes it very clear as to what has occurred in this case to secure justice. I love talking to Alina about this, and we share the same hope of irrefutable evidence. We heard earlier in this episode that defense attorney Michael Brown was already laying the groundwork for questioning the DNA evidence presented by the DA in this case. So side note, if you want more of Alina, new episodes of her show, Crime Scene Confidential, air Wednesdays at 9, 8 central on ID. So be sure to check it out. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to our early episodes on this case, please take a moment to do so. We take a deep look at the Long Island serial killer investigation, the victims, and, frankly, how we got here. For all things Long Island serial killer, keep it right here. Please subscribe to get the latest on the Rex Heerman case, as well as further insights on all the other victims and cold cases getting new energy in light of his arrest. If you know Rex Heuerman, or if you would like to contribute to our story in a different way, please send an email to us at unraveledtips at gmail.com or contact me directly on Instagram at Alexis Linkletter. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers and writers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and myself, Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Our editor is Caitlin Cleveland. Lisa Rebikoff is our associate producer. The music and score that you've heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.